Now we're going to read from God's word. We're in the book of Genesis, chapter 9, reading from verses 18 through 29. Genesis 9, 18 through 29. Now, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. The Bible tells us that Noah was a righteous man, that he was blameless among the people of his time, and that he walked faithfully with God. And that's Genesis 6-9. We might say it this way. Noah was a good man. Noah was exemplary. Noah was godly. But what do we see in our text tonight? These are the last events reported in the life of Noah. The last, the final story about Noah. And they're terribly disappointing. Of all the people on the planet, God had noted Noah for his faithfulness. And and God had spared Noah and selected Noah to save the human race. But here Noah is in the final chapter of his story. He's drunk, naked, and cursing cursing his grandson. Now, that's not what we want to hear, is it? We want Noah to stay admirable to the very end. We want to see his story end with his sons and and his sons who are our forefathers. We want to see them doing well. But what we see here is a father with a story of substance abuse, a story of shame and nakedness, And commentators even wonder, was there some kind of sexual impropriety here? And we see Noah cursing his own grandson, Canaan. Now, for some of you, this may actually be painfully familiar. Maybe you had a parent who battled addiction. Maybe you had a relative with a a very respected reputation in the community, maybe even at church, but they stumbled Maybe you had a a parent who hid private disgrace and and hid private shame that was playing out in the home. 
a mother or a father who said terrible things to you, who, who maybe cursed you, and, and their words have brought family conflict, family division for years, maybe even generations to come. And, and the haunting question that, that, that kind of leaks over all of this story is, will I turn into my mother? Will I turn into my father? Will the evil that plagued my parents and broke our family, will that be passed down to me? We see four things in our passage. First of all, we see the, the sin of Noah, the sin of Noah. Then secondly, we see the covering of Noah, the sin of Noah, the covering of Noah, and then thirdly, the curse of Noah. And then finally, how generational curses come to an end. The sin of Noah, the covering of Noah, the curse of Noah, and how generational curses end. We'll start with the sin of Noah. The sin of Noah. At this point in Genesis, the flood is over. We're past that. And Noah is just continuing with the rest of his life, the last third of his life. He's, he's just past midlife. Verse 20, what does he do now? Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. You could translate this, Noah began to be a, a master of the soil, a master of the earth. Like his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, Noah tills the earth. Noah tends gardens. Noah develops expertise in cultivating food and fruit from out of the land. One thing that he produces, grapes. And from the grapes, he produces wine. And here we have the occasion of Noah's sin. Verse 21, Then he, Noah, drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And so here, Noah sinned. He became drunk. Now, it's important as we look at this to recognize that the problem was never the wine. The, pri- the problem was the over-intake of the wine. Wine, according to the Bible, wine is good. It's, wine is a gift from God. For instance, Proverbs, uh, Psalms 104, 14 and 15. The Lord, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread, which strengthens man's heart. Wine is a good gift from God. In the book of John, in the New Testament, think of Jesus when he does his first public miracle. What's that first miracle? Is it healing of a blind person? Was it one of the instances of casting out a demon? His first public miracle is wine. Jesus' first public miracle is making top Tear wine to be served, to be consumed at a wedding party. And so wine is not inherently evil. Jesus came to bring gladness, and so he made wine for that celebration. John 2.10 says, you have kept the good wine until now. But wine, this gift from God, this good gift from God, wine is powerful. Wine has a potency. Wine has a power that can lead into addiction and lead into destruction. And so you have places like Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. That verse and many others in the scriptures show that God forbids people from coming under the impairment of wine or, or of any other intoxicating substance. God forbids 
getting drunk. God forbids getting high and and impairing your perception, losing your self-control because of overuse of a substance, even a good substance. Now, for instance, consider just four of, of many observations that the scriptures give us about intoxication, impairment from overuse of a substance. First of all, there's this. The Bible says intoxication, it leads to foolishness and to fights. Intoxication leads to foolishness and to fights. Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. There's this consideration, secondly. Substance abuse will lead to stupid decisions. Substance abuse will lead to stupid decisions. For instance, Isaiah 28.7. And here it's speaking of church leaders. It could be pastors. It could be elders. But they also have erred through wine. And through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. And so substance abuse leads to stupid decisions. Thirdly, we also see this in the scriptures. Drunkenness, getting high, it leads to sexual immorality. It leads to fleshly indulgence. Places like Hosea 4.11, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. Or Proverbs 23.20, do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. These things all chain together. They, 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 you have all these things that will converge together when, when you overuse substance. And then fourthly, you have a consideration like this. People even will use wine or other substances like drugs. People will use these things to abuse other people. Habakkuk 2.15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. It's saying you can't trust people who urge you to drink and to use drugs. You drink together. You get stoned together. You end up exposing yourself. You end up sleeping with strangers. You end up quarreling with police. You end up being photographed. You end up texting things that are forever remembered. And so this is Noah's sin. He gets drunk on wine. And where does that lead? That sin leads to shame. Genesis 9, 21. Then he, Noah, drank of the wine and was drunk. And here's the shame. He became uncovered in his tent. So let's look at two things here. The shame of Noah and the righteousness of Noah. The shame of Noah and the righteousness of Noah. First of all, consider here the shame of Noah. What happens when someone gets drunk? When someone gets drunk, your blood vessels dilate, your blood flow increases, and and you become flushed, reddened in the skin, and and you feel hot, you feel warm. And so Noah disrobed, either because he felt hot, or maybe just in his drunken clumsiness, he he just becomes ungarbed. Alcohol, mind-altering substance, they will impair your judgment. They'll impair your perception of what's going on. And you'll do foolish things that you would never do if you were in your right mind. You do things that will bring shame on you. I had a good friend who talks about a time uh, when they were, they just had never known the Lord. And uh, they were just out partying. And they woke up the next morning 
lying in the front yard and they realized something is in trouble with my life. You do things when you, when you, when you get drunk or, or abuse drugs that will bring you shame. We know from Genesis 3 that nakedness, apart from marriage, it brings shame. In the day, in the culture of Noah, people will be horrified to be seen without clothes. You can remember back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed, suddenly their state of nakedness became a state of shame for them. We can't be seen anymore because we are shameful. The reality of, of who we are in our sin, it, it just needs to be hidden, even clothes, something. Noah's drinking problem was shameful. And, and Noah's naked behavior was also shameful. So that's the shame of Noah. Now, secondly, consider, consider the righteousness of Noah. The Lord said earlier that Noah was a righteous man. And Noah did have a close relationship with the Lord. All that's true. But here we, we have to face something that's very painful. All people have evil in them. Even the most righteous person. Remember a few verses earlier, Genesis eight twenty one. The Lord sees that the imagination of people's hearts is evil from childhood. That means maybe you had a mentor who was a very good person. But later, you learned of some, some shameful secret that just forever put a blot in your memory of that person. Or, or maybe you had a pastor or some counselor that greatly helped you through very dark times. But then later, you were so disappointed to hear that they were cruel to their own children. But maybe, maybe just your own mother, maybe your own father. As good and righteous as... Perhaps they appeared to everyone. Maybe they had something scandalous that ruined their reputation in your eyes. We've looked at the sin of Noah. Now let's look at the covering of Noah. This is verses 22 through 24. So Noah gets drunk. Noah disrobes. Verse 22, and his youngest son, Ham, the father of Canaan, sees the naked shame of his father. And then he goes and he tells his other two brothers outside. And, and so maybe, maybe it played out this way. Ham was just passing by Noah's tent. Maybe he stepped into Noah's tent to borrow something. And there he sees Noah, the righteous man, the, the one who's called in the New Testament the preacher of righteousness. He sees him there, snoring, naked, and smelling of alcohol. And Ham leaves the tent of Noah. He goes and he finds his older two brothers, Shem and Japheth, and then Ham tells them about Noah's disgrace. Ham, Ham spreads the story unnecessarily about Noah's sin and shame. He, he exposes Noah. Now, we live in a time when it just seems right to expose anything, any flaw. We live in a time when it seems right to scoff at everything that's revealed it just seems normal to expose everything and everyone and, and to scoff at it. And, and so the stories that get passed around on social media, they eagerly expose every private secret that comes to light. Now, I'm not talking about crimes. I'm not talking about evil, secret crimes that are committed maybe by political leaders, things where the force of law needs to be brought down. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about just exposing private things that are rightly private, private secrets of coworkers, 
private secrets of, of family members, of church friends. Because today, exposing the sins of others, any sin, it just feels normal. And scoffing at it seems normal. Speaking disdainfully about one another, tearing one another down. You hear people everywhere scoffing at whoever's president. You hear people scoffing at whoever's running for president. You hear people scoffing at parents. People scoffing at their ex. But that's not how we treat each other. That's not how we want to be treated by one another. We should cover some things. We should cover people. Proverbs 17.9, he who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. In the NIV's translation, whoever would foster love covers an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Let me be clear about this. When there is evil, it needs to be confronted there are things, there are, there are plenty of things that happen at the daily level that you can and should just cover with love. But when it's something more than that, something that you shouldn't forbear with, when there's evil that needs to be confronted, for instance, when there's abuse, and when abuse is hidden, it must be exposed. For instance, you recall how Nathan had to publicly confront David's abuse of power, David's sexual abuse, David's murder of a loyal man. Recall in the New Testament how Peter, Peter, the leader in the church, he, he was cowardly, he was racist in how he treated the Gentile believers. And so Paul had to stand up and had to publicly call him out for that. And the Bible even says, when leaders sin, when elders sin, they need to be publicly exposed. First Timothy five twenty. Those elders who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. But I'm not talking about these kinds of things that, that must be must be exposed. That 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 must not be forborne with. I'm talking about the sins that we commit that, that rightly should be kept private depending on the sin, only the minimum number of people may need to be brought in. Now, you might be thinking, okay, does that mean I can't talk about anything? What if I'm confused? What if something's been done and I'm just trying to figure out, is this something to bear with or is this something that needs to be confronted? Here's a helpful rule of thumb. If you don't know what to do, with a a, a right heart, you can and should go ask someone wise, someone who's a trusted elder or, or someone who's a trusted counselor to help you understand where, is this something to bear with or is this something that needs to be confronted? You're not, you're, not, you're not spreading the story by asking for help, asking for wisdom. Depending on the sin, though, generally speaking, the principle is only the minimum necessary people need to be brought in. That's because of places like Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. The NIV says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Now, if something doesn't change, if they won't hear you, then it says, make the circle a little bit bigger. Go, take one or two brothers with you, and then, again, bring the confrontation. And so you start privately, if you can. And if that doesn't work, perhaps you need help, a wise person, maybe an elder to go with you to the person, again, and trying again. But, but if it's not that kind of thing, Proverbs 17.9 calls us to cover a transgression, 
not to repeat a matter. Why? Because we love the person. And 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. But what we see with this story is the opposite. Ham, Ham publicizes and spreads Noah's sin and shame. He's not looking to try to, to um, entreat Noah, to confront Noah privately. He's publicizing and spreading Noah's sin and shame. But the other sons, Shem and Japheth, they cover and they overlook Noah's sin and shame. So verse 23, they won't look on Noah's shameful nakedness. They don't take pictures of it on their phones. They don't gossip about Noah. Instead, they try to deal with his shame. They, they enter the tent backwards so that they're, they're looking away from Noah and they've got some kind of clothing held between them. And as they back up, and maybe as the line of the clothing backs up enough that they, they, they can see their father's feet, then they know, okay, now we can lay down the garment without having to look at him, and we'll lay down the clothing over Noah's private parts. Now, in some ways, this is the opposite of pornography. Instead of looking at the person's shameful nakedness, they look away. And they cover Noah's shameful nakedness. They cover his shame in love. Now, I have to qualify this again. If a person is harming others, or if a person is harming themselves, love, the kind of love we're talking about, it dictates that you urge them to stop. You, you urge them to get help. You may have to immediately contact others and bring them in, bring in authorities, bring in help. If your parent has a substance abuse problem, if your child has an addiction or, or self-destructive behavior, love compels you not to just pass over it, but to address it and, and even bring in others to help. These sons address this at the level where it was occurring. But wisdom can tell you when it's something that you need to cover, when you can just cover the shame, when you can just privately ask the person, when you can privately just entreat them, Maybe what you need is a wise advisor who can just help you distinguish what's the right response in this confusing situation. Now we come to the curse of Noah. This is verses 24 through 29. Verse 24, Noah awakes from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. So it says he slept off his intoxication. He woke up and he realizes what has been done to him by Ham, his youngest son. And what happens next it just raises all kinds of questions. There are just so many questions about this part in the text. You've got Noah cursing his grandson. Noah curses not Ham, the son who was directly involved, but Ham's fourth son, Ham's youngest son, Canaan. And, and the situation is confusing and raises all kinds of questions because Noah is the one who got drunk. Noah is the one who shamefully disrobes. But Ham is the one who spread the report but Noah curses not Ham, but his own grandson, the youngest son of Ham, Canaan. Verse 25, then Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. This raises these questions like, why doesn't Noah get rebuked? Why isn't Noah showing some kind of repentance? And why does Noah curse Ham's line. And, and why does he curse his own grandson instead of Ham? Because it was Ham that looked on the nakedness. It was Ham who spread the story. And maybe the biggest question is, why is this the final episode in Noah's life? Well, just at a, at a, at a 
this is not the full answer and it's not satisfactory, but Noah's curse, by this curse, the book is foreshadowing this, the, the huge family division that's going to come between the sons of Noah. The family division that results from Noah's sin. Noah's sin and shame, it provides the occasion for this son, Ham, to stumble. And then the descendants of Ham, Canaan, through Canaan, they end up being the great enemies of other descendants of Noah through, through the son Shem. Israel descends from Shem. Canaan descends from Ham. And, and the following generations from that family, they will suffer the effects of the father's behavior. Maybe, maybe it's because the Canaanites, they emulate whatever is going on in the ethos, the family system dysfunction in Ham's house. Maybe it's just some generational curse is getting passed down. But what do we make of all this? Is Noah, with his sin of drunkenness, is he compounding his sin and his shame by speaking vindictively? Is that what's going on? Is Noah saying something in the heat of the moment that he's going to forever regret? Is Noah here saying the kind of things that parents say when, when the parent's been hypocritical, when they're caught in their hypocrisy, but instead of being repentant, they, they become defensive. They, they start to blame shift. And in that moment, they utter terrible words that ring forever in the ears of their children, that ring forever in the ears of the grandchildren. Maybe it's, it's when a parent who's in the wrong, but they lash out and, and they curse you. They say things to you like, you are such a disappointment. You will never amount to anything. I can't stand you, and neither can anyone else. Maybe they called you trash. The words that parents utter in rage, or if they're under the influence, or they're just clothed with their own shame for what they've done, the words that parents utter have power. Here Noah says, you will be the lowest of slaves to your uncles. Noah curses Canaan. Noah curses Canaan. Do you realize that these words are the only recorded words of Noah from his entire life in the Bible? Let me point out two curious things about this curse that comes from Noah. First of all, Noah here is cursing a man whom God has blessed. And this chapter begins with the blessing of God on these sons, including Ham. Verse 1, so God blessed Noah and his sons. A blessing is the opposite of a curse. God blessed Ham. And so maybe Noah here is trying to sidestep the blessing of God, kind of employing a technicality. Well, well Ham was blessed by God, so I can't curse him, but maybe I can curse Ham, a son, Canaan, a son of Ham. And maybe, maybe you know something of what that's like. You know, we, there's someone that you just, you want to curse them. You want to bring down trouble and evil and wrath on them. And, and we find it easy to rationalize about that and, and to, to say, well, this situation, this situation, my situation, my wrath is, is justified. I don't owe that person, that despicable person, I don't owe them love. I don't owe them forgiveness. I actually have, I have a pass to seek revenge on them. Noah here is cursing those whom God has blessed. Notice this also about Noah's curse. Noah's curse 
it appears to fail. Yes, it's true that the generations after this curse is uttered, the generations afterwards, they are divided from each other. And eventually Israel and Canaan, they go to war. And Israel is told to wipe them out. He's not told to enslave them and to have them serve him. The extended family has has broken into factions. They're divisions. Clan against clan. Brothers against brothers. Maybe your own family, your extended family, has something like this. Like, Like maybe for you, the way it worked out, it was over an inheritance. And there are these decades of disagreement about, about how Uncle Bubba's inheritance was handled or how it was mishandled. And people are just divided. Maybe it's like these decades of, of recrimination and shame over some other person, some relative's response, how they responded to scandal and to sin. Now, commentators list many, many, many ideas, many possible ideas for how, how it was that perhaps Canaan became the slaves of Shem and of Japheth. But really, everything they offer up, none of them really seem to match. It just didn't seem to happen. And I wonder if that's because Noah's words were never God's words. In the end, Noah's curse seems to fall flat because his curse doesn't come from God. And so in that, you have reason for hope Maybe you've been cursed, cursed by a a friend, cursed by a relative, cursed by your own father, cursed by your own spouse, cursed by your own mother. Maybe someone uttered horrible words to you, words when you were a child, words when, when you were at a vulnerable place, words when maybe you did something that was foolish or stupid, and that curse, those words have harmed you. They've haunted you. These are the words that always sneak in whenever you're down. But they're also the words that sneak in and spoil any time you have success. Because you're thinking, maybe what they said is true. Maybe what they said to me and about me is true. Maybe I'll never be enough. Maybe I'm doomed to be just like my mother. Maybe I'm doomed to be just like my father or whoever. Maybe you feel doomed. Maybe you have the weight of the curse on yourself, condemning yourself, feeling like, I am doomed to repeat the sins of my fathers, whether it's their substance abuse, whether it's their interpersonal abuse. Maybe it's their their warped outlook and withdrawal from people. Whatever it is that you have been spending your whole life running away from. Well, let's close now by talking about how generational curses end, how generational curses come to an end. And as we look at this and, and so many other places in the Bible, We find that the Bible is a very honest book. Many, many of the great people in the Bible have significant ugly problems, significant marriage problems, significant parenting problems, significant private problems. You can take Judah. Judah, who is a son of the patriarchs. He is a forefather of the Messiah. He sleeps with prostitutes. It's just normal for him. You've got the sons of Isaac. They have a falling out between the two of them that never quite resolves to the end of their days. Then you've got David, the man after God's own heart, the king, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David's sin leads to estrangement. It leads to chaos from his son, Absalom. And then you've got, you've got Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. He can't get his bedroom in order. 
Was your father warped? Was your mother some kind of addict? Was your parents' marriage a mess? And you fear that you're going to be in a marriage mess of your own one day. Are you doomed to repeat the curse of the sins and the shame of your fathers? Noah attempts to curse Canaan, but later in the Bible, the Lord clearly says that sons are not to be punished for the sins of the fathers. Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins shall die, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. Well, that's what, the, that's what the Lord says about how he operates. But doesn't it seem like there is a generational pattern? Doesn't it seem like you're actually getting sucked into that, swept up in it, and, and you can't seem to break the generational pattern? Doesn't it seem sometimes like the, the influence of, of your family of origin, it's just too strong, and that you've got, you've got no other pattern to imitate except for the the dysfunctional pattern that you grew up with. You feel like you live under some kind of generational curse. Now, the message of Christianity, it says to some extent all that's true, because all of us inherit evil from Adam and the evil of Noah. We inherit. Our hearts were born corrupt ever since Adam fell from righteousness, and generation after generation, the weakness and the evil, they were passed down. And we know that we add to that our own sins, we, we just inject that into the stream that goes down from generation to generation. We create our own curse for the generations to come. How do the generational curses come to an end? How does this, this ultimate generational curse from, from Adam, from Noah, how does it end? The generational curse that we all live under comes to an end in the gospel. Noah is not the good father that we need. Noah's drunken sin and shameful nakedness, they are the occasion for his own son to stumble into sin and to be cursed by his own father. In the gospel, Jesus is the son who refused the wine but took the wine of wrath and he was shamed and he was stripped naked and it was shameful and he received the father's curse. Jesus took the curse from his father on himself. And if you believe on Jesus, Jesus receives the curse of our fathers and our father's shame so that we can have honor and reconciliation to our heavenly father. And and to to, to anyone who is, is dealing with addictive substance or dealing with addictive behavior patterns that you can't shake, maybe it's your fear, maybe it's your anxiety, maybe it's your anger, Jesus gives you not wine, He gives you a spirit, a new spirit. He gives you a new family and a new family system. And he gives you a new heart. Ezekiel 18 that we just read from, it also says, turn away. He calls you to turn. Turn away from all of that. Repent. Turn to him and believe on him. Turn away and you'll surely live. You shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. The Lord says, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die and not that he should turn from his ways and live? He calls all of us to turn and to, and to take the exit ramp out of these generational curses that all of us live under. Jesus has done all things well. 
By his death, he was cursed in your place. By his righteous life, you receive not cursing, you receive blessing and praise from the Father. You could never be enough, but Jesus did all things well. And if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what your mother or father ever said to you. If you're a Christian, you are not doomed to become your father. You are destined to become your brother. And as we close, we see how Jesus breaks the curse of Noah. And it actually gives us a motive for evangelism and for missions. Noah and Ham's sin, it divided the people. And it seemed to just close the doors to come into the kingdom of God, except only if you were part of this narrow line of Shem. It seemed to close the rest of the world off from this. But Jesus Christ is the light of the nations. Jesus accomplishes the removal of shame, the inclusion of the son of Canaan and the Gentiles. He's bringing Canaan in. And that's why 1 John 4.14 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Have you seen? Have you turned to him? Have you believed on him? And will you tell about him? Let's pray. Lord, come to us. We feel so powerless when we we might look up our family tree and see things that change down and are coming at us like a train and how are we going to get out of the way and not be run over by it and just be part of this chain that keeps moving down. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our deliverer, that he broke the curse and that he's given us a new family and a new identity and he's given us a new spirit and that we're no longer destined and doomed to be caught up in sin and shame. And so we rejoice in you, we thank you, and we pray that you would continue to do your work in bringing in the families and the nations of the world, even through us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.